Welcome to the SCG Church Podcast. We'd love to have you join us for our weekend services in person in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our service live online at scgchurch.org or live on our Facebook and YouTube pages. Thanks for listening. Good to see you this morning. This is a treat and an honor on so many levels. And we're going to dive right in because I have a question for you. As you think about the next generation coming up behind you, who, by the way, has more challenges intellectually, morally, emotionally, spiritually, because of this little rectangle thing called a smartphone, than any recent generation? As you think about them, what do you think your role is to pass on the faith to this new generation? So if you're going to write a mission statement describing how to do so, what would it say? I'm entering into my 10th year teaching at Biola, but for 20 years, either full-time or part-time, I've taught at a small Christian school in San Juan Capistrano as well. And I ask my students in high school a lot of questions because I want to know what they're thinking and kind of what's shifting in culture. One of the questions I've asked these students, again, a great private Christian school is this. More than anything else, what do your parents want for you? Now, as you could guess, the number one answer is, my parents just want me to be what? <laughs> to be happy or be successful. That's right. Now, I'm a parent. I have three kids. And I want my kids to be happy, and I want them to be successful. But I would much rather have them be miserable failures in the eyes of the world and follow Jesus than happy and successful and not. <laughs> so, of course, the question is, how do we do this? And most importantly, what does scripture say about passing on the faith to this generation? Well, I think it's going to begin by framing how we should think about the next generation first. One of my favorite Psalms in the Old Testament says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. I've gotten a tour of your amazing church. What incredible facilities and resources you have. But hands down, the best resource you have is the next generation to live and fight for the kingdom of God when you and I are gone. So what does the Bible say about passing on faith to the next generation? I'm glad you asked because that's what we're going to explore this morning. And we're going to turn to a book in the Bible called Deuteronomy. You know how to get there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Deuteronomy. <laughs> You're welcome to turn there in your Bibles. We'll throw the slides up on the screen. But we're going to actually jump in. We're in chapter 6. And we're going to jump in actually to verse 2 to frame this. Verse 2 says this. That you may fear the Lord your God, your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. So notice just for context, here's Moses delivering a message from God through Moses to the people of Israel. They've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. They're about to go into the promised land and everything is about to change. They've had a pillar of fire by, by night and a cloud by day telling them where to go. Now they're going to settle down 
and live in homes they didn't construct, cultivate fields they didn't begin. Their world is radically shifting, and Moses, who's been shepherding them for 40 years, can't go with them. So he writes this book to help them be successful in the land and to follow after God one generation to the next. But what's so interesting about this passage, it says that you may fear the Lord your God and your son and your son's sons. In other words, your grandson or your grandchildren. Is that when God begins this nation of Israel, he's not saying it's just for you and the X number of years God has given you. He's saying your faithfulness is going to echo to your kids and your kids' kids and all the generations coming after. Now, when we begin to look at our lives that way, that changes things, doesn't it? That changes things. Some of you might recognize the last name McDowell and be familiar with my father, Josh McDowell, who's been in ministry 60 years. I told my dad recently, I was like, man, dad, you're old. When he started ministry, the Dead Sea was only sick. <laughs> In fact, I told my dad, I was like, Dad, when God said, let there be light, did you flip on the switch? And if you happen to know my dad, he comes right back. He's got his zinger himself. But my dad has written, I think, 150 plus books, spoken at 1,200 universities. I mean, God has used him for remarkable ways, unbelievably. But a lot of people don't know his story. He grew up in a small town in Michigan, and his father was the town drunk. He experienced the shame that came with that. My dad's sister took her own life. In fact, when my dad was born, as soon as he is younger, one of his earliest memories is his parents basically telling him that he wasn't wanted and he was a surprise and a mistake. My dad was severely sexually abused for seven years by somebody who lived on their farm, and he told his mom in the 40s, and she basically said, be quiet, because nobody talked about that back then. By all sociological standards, my dad should be dead, or he should be in prison. But God got a hold of my dad's life and transformed him through his grace from the inside out. And what's interesting, if you ask my dad what he's most proud of, he won't mention the big numbers and accomplishments. He'll say, you know what? My kids and my grandkids are following the Lord. One life can echo for generations. When God begins the nation of Israel, he's saying this is for you and your kids and your grandkids. Your life and my life, our faithfulness or our lack thereof is going to echo for generations. That's how this is framed. And then Moses gives us in verse 4, we'll get there in a second, what's famously called the Shema. You could make the case that this is the most important or one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. How could I say that? Well, Jesus asked what's the greatest commandment in the law, and what does he say? He cites the Shema. He actually cites this passage. So we had a chance to go to Israel a few years ago. And I'll get to that verse in a second. And my wife and I, when we got on the bus, I'll never forget, we landed in Tel Aviv and we got on the bus and the lady, the, the guy who's our tour guide, he says to us two words. He says, welcome home. And I was like, wow, that rings true. Even though this is one of the only times I've been here. We went on a tour of the Sea of Galilee and I was so moved, I jumped out of the boat and I started walking on the water. It actually didn't work out, but if you're there, you got to at least try, right? 
Well, I learned that Orthodox Jews repeat this passage we're about to look at twice a day. That's how important this is. So it's called the Shema, and in verse 4, here's what it says. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or some translations say, Listen, Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. I kind of imagine Moses saying, Israel, listen up. Let me begin. Let me have your attention. Put your smartphones down. He says, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. Right away, we learn something about passing on the faith the next generation. It's this. Make God the Lord of your home. Make God the Lord of your home. Because something is Lord of your life and something is Lord of your home. The question is not if, the question is what. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's making money. Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's a human relationship. Maybe it's God. 12 years ago, I had my first public academic debate with a high school teacher who's a PhD. He's about twice my age in the public school across town where I live. And uh, he was sued in a court of law because a kid recorded him under the desk and said things that the student felt was offensive about the Christian faith. And it made it all the way up to the O'Reilly factor, if you remember that show on Fox years ago. And I was invited to debate him on the question of God and morality. And I did. It was fascinating. And a few weeks before, I got an email from a girl who said, hey, can I interview you for the local paper before this debate? I said, sure. And then a couple days later, I got another email from her, and I'm reading this thinking, why is she sending me this? She's talking about, like, depression and loneliness and rebellion. And then it hit me that she sent it to me, but meant to send it to somebody else. You ever sent somebody a message, and you meant to send it to somebody else? Yeah, I sent a message to a friend. We're on the same flight together, and... I didn't know he was there, so I texted him. When we landed, I was like, I said, hey, punk, turn around. I'm right behind you. And I sent it to my mom. <laughs> who was home alone reading at night. I wish I had screenshot it. She goes, hey, son, I think you got the wrong punk. I was like, man, we've all done that, right? So she comes over, does the interview, and it's done. I said, you know what? I'm not a trained counselor. I said, it's probably none of my business, but you sent me this message, and I, I read it before I realized it wasn't meant for me. You're talking about some heavy stuff. Do you want to talk about it? She goes, sure. She basically said, rebellion against my parents, anger, I'm depressed. She goes, in fact, I was in church last Sunday, and my parents don't even know. I don't even believe in their God anymore. I just listened and asked her questions. Essentially, she said, I have a hard time believing in a personal, loving God. When my father has been so distant and such a workaholic. Do you see why scripture says make God number one, not something else? In fact, when we make God number one, other priorities start to fall in line, don't they? In fact, if you're sitting there going, well, how do I really know what's, if it's God is Lord of my home? Well, two things. Look in your checkbook or look in your calendar. If you don't know what a checkbook is, ask somebody over 30. <laughs> Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where we spend our time and our money reveals our passions and our priorities, doesn't it? In fact, I actually think it reveals what is Lord of our life when we hit some kind of crisis. And for some of us, this probably came through during the pandemic, didn't it? When crisis hits, it's like kids have an antenna that tunes in. It's like, do mom and dad, do my grandparents 
really believe what they say they believe. So probably 15 years ago, I was going to speak in the mountains outside of Fresno, driving up the 99 freeway with a pastor, just the two of us. I don't remember his name, but I'll never forget something that happened. We're driving somewhere on the 99 in the middle of nowhere, and all of a sudden this loud screeching noise comes from his car. And instantly I'm thinking, oh man, we should have left earlier. We should have rented a car instead of driving this older car. Like all the problems are going through my mind. I'm like, God, you're not going to let me be late. I mean, I'm going to speak on evangelism after all, right? We pull over, no hesitation. The pastor looks at me and he goes, let's pray. I see problems as an opportunity to trust God. And I sat there and thought, wow, compared to this guy, I'm like a spiritual grape nut. I was so convicted, but it told me when the chips are down, he's not just as a pastor for the money and pretty much nobody is anyways. He really believes this. By the way, he prayed. We started driving again and literally the sound just disappeared. And I was like, okay, prayer works. And we made it. (laughs) Make God the Lord of your life. But then Moses continues in verse five, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. In other words, love God with what? Okay, this is the participatory part of the program. (laughs) Love God with everything. Now, why does it matter that you and I love God? Why is that important? You see, the reality is we tend to have an individualistic view of our relationship with God, right? It's just me and Jesus, and we forget that how we relate to Jesus shapes the way other people think about Jesus. Why does it matter we love God with everything? Because you know why? Because kids tend to follow the passions of their parents or other significant adults in their life. If we want our kids and the next generation to be passionate about the Lord, the first thing we gotta do is look in the mirror and say, are we passionate about the Lord? (laughs) It's a fair question, isn't it? My son just graduated from high school. It's crazy how fast time goes. And I'll never forget when he was in first grade, I was driving him to school and I was first thinking about this passage. So I just turned to him, he's six or seven years old. And I said, hey, Scotty, what do you love? He goes, well, dad, in basketball, I love the Clippers. I said, okay. And by the way, when Nick said I played college basketball, when I walked up here, you're thinking, no, you didn't which only proves one thing, there must be a God, right? (laughs) He said, I love the Clippers. I said, okay, buddy, what else do you love? He goes, well, in football, I love the Chargers. I said, well, what else do you love? He goes, in baseball, I love the Red Sox, and I hate the Yankees. (laughs) Now, why did my son say he loved basketball? Well, my wife and I actually both were college point guards, and I just, I love the game of basketball. I can't describe it. I love watching it. I love talking about it. I used to love playing it. (laughs) Now I just want to stay alive. I'm 40 plus. Why did my son say he loves football? Well, my wife's dad, my father-in-law, coached football for years. And their family would watch the Chargers growing up. And we watched football games a lot together as well. Why did my son say he loves baseball? Because my mom, his Grammy, grew up in Boston. And she has drunk the Kool-Aid of the Red Sox. Even the car she has is like red and white to match the Red Sox. So my mom, it's really funny. She's a boomer and she now can, you know, check stuff on her phone. And even if the Red Sox aren't playing, she's just checking, hoping that the Yankees lose. (laughs) 
So I asked my son, I said, hey, buddy, if you could go to any sporting event with anybody, what would you do? And keep in mind, my son doesn't even play baseball. He goes, I think I'd go to a Red Sox game with Grammy in Fenway. I said, really, why? He goes, because she just loves the Red Sox so much. Isn't that powerful? He was seven. He just graduated from high school in two weeks. My mom is flying him out to a game in Fenway just to spend time with him. He doesn't watch baseball. He doesn't talk about baseball. But you know what? His Grammy, who loves him, loves baseball, and it rubs off on him. You see what Moses is saying? He's saying, love God with everything. So let me ask you a question. What do you love? What are things where the topic shifts to it, where you lean in and you enter the conversation and you get excited about it? What are those things? And on the flip side, what are the things that break your heart? Because the things we love will tend to shape the loves of our kids and what breaks our heart on the flip side will shape what breaks their heart as well. You know what's interesting about this passage? is so often when we look at the next generation, we start by saying we've got to fix this generation. The first two things Moses says is not about the generation, it's about us. Make God Lord of our lives, love God, then we can step into steps to how we shape this generation. And that's what Moses does. He goes on in verse six. He says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. In other words, the Bible has commandments and truths we can't compromise, but if we just keep it at commandments and truths, we call that legalism. In my profession, what I do, I get to interact with a ton of people with different worldviews. I love it. I recently had on somebody who described himself this way as an atheist New York media elite. Writes for New Yorker, New York Times, MSNBC, came on my YouTube channel. We just found common ground and had a conversation. It was fascinating. I interact, especially on my YouTube channel or debates or discussions with people with all sorts of different belief systems. Now, what's interesting is a high percentage of non-believers in our country today have a religious background. What you hear over and over again is it was a bunch of commandments, it was a bunch of rules, but it was never in my heart. If you want a formula for how not to pass on the faith, make Christianity about rules and regulations and legalism, that might be the most effective way to turn a young person away from the faith. That's why Moses says these commandments are to be in your heart. One of the most influential artist of all time, Vincent Van Gogh, grew up wanting to be a pastor. A lot of people don't know that. He would reach out to blue-collar folks and minister to them where he was. He was a missionary, but was not a pastor, couldn't master Greek. But then he went up before the mission board to have his license renewed, and they denied Van Gogh's license for two reasons. Number one, they said, Van Gogh, you're not a good enough preacher. And number two, your appearance is unbecoming of a minister of the gospel. Clearly, they hadn't read the story of John the Baptist. <laughs> Falls into sort of depression and then comes out of it and uh, starts talking about wanting to be an artist. Now, some of the secular story is he abandoned God and, you know, left the church. I'm not sure that's totally true. He seemed to continue to believe in God, but would use his artwork to critique the church. So he actually has a painting. You can Google and look at it. It's just called The Church, and it's a church building with no doors. 
He also has one of the most famous paintings, A Starry Night, which we all recognize. But have you ever wondered what Van Gogh is saying in this painting? See, if you look at it, our eyes are drawn to the sky, right? Because it's active and it's vibrant and it's moving. It's that moment right between day and night that they believed you could have like a certain level of spiritual depth and growth. But as you look at the top, Van Gogh continued to believe Psalms 19, that the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day by day, they spew forth knowledge. Night by night, they display speech. Nature is alive and telling us about God. But what do you notice in the middle of the valley? A church. What do you notice about the church? The lights are off because God is alive in nature, but the church is dead. That's why 2,000 years ago, Moses says these commandments are to be in your heart. To be in your heart, to live it out with passion in relationship. And then Moses gets really specific. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you get up. In other words, talk about God when? All the time. Now, of course, we don't want to exasperate our kids. That's the opposite error. But I found we're much more likely to not talk about God enough than to talk about God too much. But I think there's a principle, and it's this. It's to make God part of the rhythm of life in your home. Make God a natural part of the rhythm of life in your home. Now, why is this so important? Because our culture wants to compartmentalize God to a certain time and a certain place. So according to our culture, it's fine. Come sing worship songs and study the Bible in church maybe in a Christian school, maybe in a Bible study Wednesday night, but don't let your views of God seep out of that and affect the way you vote, the way you think about entertainment, the way you talk about sports. Don't let God shape these other things. Keep God compartmentalized to that part of your life. Without realizing as Christians, we actually do this. So as you heard, it was mentioned that I teach at a school called Biola University, private school, love it. I graduated from there in 1998. And I remember we would have a chapel, I think every spring, where we would commission people going on mission trips. It was like the last chapel or one of the last chapels of the year. So they'd have announcements, worship, message, have people stand up going on mission trips to faraway places. I mean, Africa, India, China, Texas. (laughs) They'd pray for them, sit down, and chapel was done. And I remember prompted by one of my professors, he said, I wonder why we only have people stand who go on mission trips. Why don't we have people stand who are going to be interns at IBM for the summer? Isn't that a mission field? See, without realizing, we compartmentalize. So now what's awesome is our theme at Biola is think biblically about everything. In fact, I co-host a podcast. It's called Think Biblically. And the idea is how do we think biblically about math? How do we think biblically about science? How do we think biblically about history, about nursing? Because all is God's creation. So there's not a square inch of creation which God does not cry out. It's mine. Moses, 3,000 years ago, is like, don't compartmentalize God. Make God a natural part of the rhythm of life in your home. Now, what's interesting is sociologically, now we see the value of exactly what Moses wrote, inspired by God 3,000 years ago. So there's a sociologist from Notre Dame. His name is Christian Smith, and he's been studying young people for about two decades, starting with millennials through Gen Z. 
And he wrote something in a book in 2010 that really stuck with me. It might seem obvious to you, but it seems significant to me. He said, the way we pass on spiritual beliefs is the same way, generally speaking, we pass on other beliefs. There's not a special way you pass on faith that might be different than you pass on political beliefs. So the reality is, most kids will adopt political beliefs very similar to their parents. Why? Whether you're on the left or the right, very few parents sit down and say, let me tell you how we vote and why. Here's what you should think about foreign policy, about taxes, about interaction with Israel, about whatever the issue is. But what happens is parents, when you have a certain political view, you talk about it when you're sitting at the dinner table. You talk about it when you're driving in the car. You talk about it when you're waiting for a movie to start. It comes out and you talk about it. Kids pick up on this and they naturally adopt their parents' views. So here's my question. When do you talk about God? When do you talk about God? Because if you talk about God right after church Sunday, and maybe a Bible study Tuesday night, but not throughout the rhythm of life, whether you intend to or not, you are sending the message that God can be compartmentalized to this area, but doesn't affect everything. That's what Moses is saying. Make God a natural part of the rhythm of life. But then he actually gives us specifics how to do this. He says, first, talk about them in the home. Talk about them when you sit in your house, typically over the family meal. Now, I hesitate to frame it this way, but one of the positive things that I think came out of COVID is a lot of people realize the value of slowing down a little bit and just sharing a family meal together. It reminded us of that. And I covet that time I had with my kids as difficult as <laughs> the height of the pandemic was. And our family, we're busy, it's hard to do this, but there was an article in Time a number of years ago. I can't remember, it was Time or Newsweek, and it was called The Magic of the Family Meal. And they said a trend is coming back in America, this is before the pandemic, where more families are sitting down just having a meal together because if you have a meal together, kids are less likely to kind of get into trouble and be high risk more likely to have a positive worldview shaped by their parents and contribute to the world. They said there's a direct tie to the family meal. I thought, well, that's interesting. And I thought, well, why? So I'm reading through this article, and they said there's something about a family meal where jokes are laughed at, stories are told, and the wider world is viewed through the lens of the family's values. They said even on nights, when the food is cheap and the talk is fast, it still instills in kids a sense of belonging and identity, that they're a part of something bigger than themselves. Can you see why Jesus shared a meal and broke bread with people? Now, our family's busy. I've got three kids, volleyball and sports and flag football. Like, it's hard. I'm not going to pretend we do this every night, but we try to and we carve it out. In fact, this afternoon, we have a family time we're doing. And it's not like I sit down and formally teach my kids, like, hey, we're working through the book of Nehemiah over family dinner. That might turn my kids off, to be honest. A lot of it is, hey, did you see the recent film and how sports going in school? But then as I can, I try to weave in just questions spiritually to get them thinking there's something about a family meal now in our family when we do it one rule we have is technology goes off 
turn it off. Be present with people. Amen? I was wondering if I was going to get an amen for that one or if I was getting a little bit too personal. That's the good part of being a guest speaker. I can drop bombs and just leave when I'm done. <laughs> so here, here's a practical way that maybe this would help is I wrote a book with a friend of mine years ago or a couple, like two years ago called So the Next Generation Will Know. And as we thought about this, we're like, if we give parents some new plan, no one's, everyone's going to do it for like a week and then not do it and then feel guilty, right? So what if we just shift our thinking and better recognize opportunities that are already there? So for example, my son is 18, graduated from high school. When he was 14, he wanted to see this movie called Bohemian Rhapsody, which is about the rock band. Oh, now you participate. I get it. Uh, now we're talking. Okay, I get it. <laughs> it was PG-13. So I knew it was going to have some ideas I wasn't going to be thrilled about. But I read it. I'm like, you know what? I'll take my son. My wife was on board and a friend. And I said, I said, hey, buddy, I'm happy to take you to this. And I'll spend $187 on popcorn and tickets. <laughs> and that was before inflation. Now it feels like a deal. And uh, I said, I'll just make you a deal. When we're done, can we just come back and sit down? I just want to know what you think about the movie. He goes, sure, Dad. We go to the movie. We come and we sit down probably 30 minutes. And all I said was, hey, buddy, did you like the movie? Did you have a favorite scene? What are some areas in this movie as Christians we can agree with and say that's positive redemption? I said, were there any things in the film that gave you pause? I said, were there ever times that you felt like the filmmakers had an agenda and they were preaching at you? All we did is talk about it. Friends, I've been studying the data on this for a long time. Virtually all the research I've seen shows the most effective way to pass on the faith. Number one is to make sure we're living it. And then number two, in relationship, having genuine spiritual conversations with the next generation. That's why Moses wrote 3,000 years ago. Talk about them when you sit in the house. But then he gives the second one. He says, when you walk along the road. Now, most of us do not travel by walking anymore for obvious reasons. But there's something about travel time. And so years ago, I was like, how do I just get my kids to engage and talk and think about things? So I came up with something really creative. The title is super creative. It's called The Question Game. <laughs> Obviously not that creative, but it works. And I thought, you know what? We're going to ask our kids questions and keep score because they're super competitive like their mom, not me. That's so not true. Both my wife and I are competitive, and our kids are competitive. It's like we're going to keep score. We're asking questions about math, spelling, history, maybe science, and Bible. Now, part of the thinking is, when we talk about math, there's an objective right answer. When we talk about history, there's an objective right answer. When we talk about science, there's an objective right answer. And when we talk about God, there's objective right answers, and there's knowledge. First John says, we know that we have eternal life. So I just started asking my kids questions, and sometimes it launched into conversations, sometimes it just helped us engage. And when we started, my daughter, I think she was three, so every spiritual question, the answer had to be Jesus, right? Somebody got it. She's three. So I thought, I'm going to mix it up someday. So I'm driving, looking in the rearview mirror, my daughter's in her car seat right behind me, and I can see her eye to eye, and I thought, I'm going to mix it up. I said, Shauna, your turn. Where do we go when we die? No hesitation, my three-year-old says, 
jail. <laughs> I knew we had to work on our theology. <laughs> Number three, it says when you lie down. When you lie down. There's something about the end of a day that often a kid's heart and mind is open to just talk sometimes about spiritual things. So by the way, do you know where kids go with questions today? What's the number one place kids look for answers to questions? Where is it? I heard Google. I heard YouTube. That is not number one. Number one now is TikTok. It's now, you go there too. All right. I will make no judgments. I'm actually on TikTok. So you go there, I'm at, believe it or not. I'm actually on TikTok. And partly my son goes, if you want to reach our generation, get on TikTok. I was like, okay, that's where they're spending their time. But I don't want my kids going there primarily with questions. I want them to know they can ask mom and dad. We won't shame them. We won't tell, make something up. We'll listen to them. So every time I can remember, when I just tuck my kids in at night, I say, you know, you can ask your mom or dad anything. And when my son, again, was about seven, he goes, okay, dad, who is Jesus praying to in the garden? I said, what do you mean? He said, Jesus is God, right? I said, yes. He said, the Father's God, right? I said, yes. He said, was Jesus praying to himself? I said, go ask your mom. <laughs> Actually, I did my best to explain the incarnation and Trinity to a seven-year-old. But what I did is I go, whoa, buddy, what a good question. Good for you. See, sometimes we're afraid of questions. Sometimes we poo-poo questions. We don't have an answer. We feel inadequate. What we need to say is, what an awesome question. God is big enough for your questions. If there's any religion that's okay with questions and should invite them, it's Christianity because Christianity is actually true. Jesus said, love God with your heart, your soul, your mind. Isaiah says, come let us reason together. You know, the data shows that kids do not leave the faith just because of doubt. You know what's more damaging? Unexpressed doubt. Unexpressed doubt. When someone feels like, I can't ask this question, and they bury it down, it sometimes festers like a cancer. So believe it or not, just inviting questions and showing you're okay with it and then together finding an answer and looking for it is far more valuable than feeling like you have a perfect answer. So in your home and your family and your church, do you invite questions? Are you okay with doubt? Ask your kids you know, hey, do you feel comfortable talking with me about something? You can ask your mom and your dad, your papa, your grammy, anything, and we'll talk about it. The last one says, when you get up. When you get up. There's something about the morning. I'm a morning person. I like to get up and just listen to a podcast. I listen to a podcast called The Listener's Commentary. It's just commentary on the Bible. I enjoy making breakfast and just having a little calm before the storm of a day. Well, for years... Uh, again, I live in San Juan, Capistrano. There's a coffee shop, and I would go. I didn't have class on Wednesdays till like 10:30 or 11, so I'd get up early and I'd go work three, four hours plus, grade papers, write lessons, prepare, whatever, work on something. 
And I remember sitting there one time, and I looked kind of across the table near me. There was a grandfather and his grandson. The Bible was open. And they were talking about, like, investing in finances and a biblical view of money. Came back the next Wednesday, grandfather, grandson. Bible was open. They were talking about, like, relationships and dating and what the Bible says about it. Came back the next week, grandfather, grandson. Bible was open. I started to realize every week, this grandfather before school, picking up his grandson, mentor him through the scriptures, spending, you know, four or five bucks on coffee and a donut. Actually, it was Starbucks, eight bucks on a coffee and donut, <laughs> and pouring into his grandson. It really impressed upon me. I thought, wow, that's the kind of grandpa I want to be someday. But I started thinking, how different would my classroom be if every kid had a grandfather or an uncle or an adult that intentional about their faith? How different would your church be if every young person had adults intentionally pouring into them like this? How different would our state of California be? I mean, honestly, like there's really deep biblical principles in the Proverbs that say things like, don't spend what you don't have. <laughs> These are actually biblical ideas of stewardship. And so I sent out a tweet years ago. Again, I wish I had screenshotted it. This is years ago. Something like watching this grandfather week after week before class, like biblically mentoring his grandson, something like that. And then you can watch the comments that come back. You know what one of the number one comments was? I wish I had a grandfather like that. Friends, the heart of this generation is to be called the beloved. That's the heart of this generation. You know what social media is about? So much of it is just about, do you see me? Will you like my video? Will you comment? Do I matter? Am I important? That's the heart of this generation. Somebody who knows them to say, you are the beloved, I care about you. No matter what you say, no matter what you do, I'm gonna help you become the person that God has designed you to be. The question is, is that you as you look to the next generation? Because that generation needs every single one of you in this room. What you say and in what you do. I know some of you are sitting here going, gosh, Sean, one of two things. Either I read this passage and I tried this with my kids and they're not following the Lord. Maybe some of you are sitting here going, God, I wish I had heard this years ago. I would have parented differently and maybe my kids would have turned out different. The first thing I'm gonna say is this, give yourself grace. At the heart of the Christian faith and the Christian faith alone is that God has grace for us. Don't let your past determine your future. God gives you grace and you know what? I thank God for that daily because I'm well aware of my faults and my shortcomings. Second, have you ever realized that God's heart is more broken for our kids than your heart or my heart could ever be? Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He left the 99, he says, to go get the one. But maybe today is the day you could start to restore that relationship. Friends, this generation needs us. I have a feeling the older we get and we look back over our life, 
We're going to care less about certain things that consume our lives today. But we're going to look back a lot like my dad does at 83 years old almost and say, you know what? It's my kids and my grandkids and my family that I've poured myself into that echoes for generations that matters most. Amen? I, uh, thank you. Very kind. If it's helpful, a couple of resources. The book I mentioned, So the Next Generation Will Know, with a, a colleague of mine, Jay Warren Wallace, who's spoken here, former atheist who studied the scriptures with, with forensic science, realized it's true. We wrote a book, How to Pass on the Faith. Now, this is what we call a how book. So it's not what you should do. It's not why. It's how do we actually do this? So parent, grandparent, youth pastor, Christian school teacher, adult who's saying, what does this look like? How do I practically do the things you talked about this morning? That book, So the Next Generation Know, might help. Now, my latest book that came out this month is called A Rebel's Manifesto. And I'm calling up a generation that's written for students to be rebels, but not in the way our culture rebels, like with cancel culture, but to rebel in the love and kindness and truth of Jesus. So it's a book on every single of the most thorny topics from immigration to gun control to race to transgender, etc. And it's meant to help us apply biblical principles and just have those conversations with the next generation. Now, I might not have brought enough copies, but there's some back there. If we run out, don't worry. Amazon will deliver it to you this afternoon on a drone. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this church. Thank you for just amazing facilities. What a beautiful, amazing church this is. But more important than anything material, I pray you just impress upon all of us how important it is to love and care for the next generation. Give us a heart for young people. Give us the ability to connect with them and the ways to just ask questions and pass on that faith to them. God, we are so grateful and praise in your name. Amen. Thanks, brother. <laughs> Can you do me a favor? Put your hands together for the man of God, Dr. McDowell. Have you not been blessed to be in the house of the Lord at least one more time? Look, we just want to remind you that there are great things happening all over campus. Please go say hello to Sean and go grab one of those books. We thank you for being here. Have a blessed rest of your weekend. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we have live services on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings in our West Auditorium. Or you can watch live online at scgchurch.org or on our YouTube and Facebook.